This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Hey, listeners. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We are glad that you are with us today because it's our second anniversary, right? It is. We recently brought you our 100th episode, which now brings us to another milestone, which is our second birthday. We have been chatting with you all about the most gruesome dirtbags for two years. It's hard to believe. It is hard to believe that it's been that many episodes. <laughs> it's true. So we just wanted to say thanks to all of you for sticking with us and telling your friends, because sharing is caring. We love it when you share our podcast and give us reviews. It's much appreciated. I just can't believe there's this many dirtbags to cover. We haven't even scratched the surface two years in. It's true. I feel like we could do this for 20 years and still not run out of dirtbags. It's just crazy. It is. And for today's case, you have something special for our birthday, don't you? Well, I do. Since we are celebrating two years, I decided I couldn't just bring us one dirtbag today. I had to bring you two. But this killer duo is unlike any we have covered. Typically, we cover a love-struck duo or two perverted creeps. But today, I am bringing you a mother and son combo straight out of the crime vault. No way. Mm-hmm. It's very unique. And you know how we talk about killers having unusual relationships with their mothers? This is definitely going to fall under that category. You know what it has me thinking about is when we did that locked room in my basement and we put up that picture of the mother that was breastfeeding her son in the, was it the Wendy's? (laughs) Yeah. And he was like in his thirties or something. Yes. Such an unusual mother-son relationship. Yeah. (laughs) That's all I can think of. That's who I'm picturing right now. So as you tell this case, that's who I'm going to be thinking about. (laughs) Now I will be too. Actually, I won't because I know so much about these guys, but I can see why you would think that and hang on to your boots because this one's probably going to leave a lasting impression as well. This mother's greed and entitlement mixed with her lack of care for another's well-being is bad enough, but seeing how she raised another human to be just like her is deplorable and really gives a solid argument to the nurture side of the nature-nurture debate. She molded herself a partner in crime. That's just crazy, but... It makes me wonder why it doesn't happen more often. It's true. I think usually dirtbags are hiding their crimes from their families more often than putting it right out there and getting them to join in. Right. They're wearing that mask that we talked about last week. Totally. I am not convinced that this son would have turned out the way that he did had he not been under his mother's influence. That being said, he did what he did, and I believe he got what he deserved. Many people disagree with me, so I am curious what you and our listeners will think. I'm already leaning towards 
if he's an adult, he's an adult. Yeah, that's how I feel with it. But I do see the point that had he not been under his mom's thumb, he probably wouldn't have turned out this way. So he was totally manipulated? Oh, totally. And unable to make his own choices. No, I feel like he's responsible for his choices. You still know right from wrong. I guess it's that debate of whether knowing right from wrong is intrinsic or not. Or is it something that you're taught? True. But when you're hiding your actions, you know it's wrong. That is very true. We'll see what you think by the end. We are covering the case of Sante and Kenny Kimes. To do this, we need to start with Sante. I am going to go over details in her childhood that will mimic a lot of what happens in her adult life, which I found super interesting to see these parallels. And just as a little disclaimer here, half of the documentaries and things that I saw in news programs said Sante and the other said Sante. So I'm just going with Sante, but if I say it the other way, that's just what it's going to be. It was hard to get a proper pronunciation for her. And it probably depends on who's presenting it. Right. And even from very reliable sources, it was differing. Sante was born on July 24th, 1934 in Oklahoma City in the United States of America. She was the third born out of four children to marry Gertrude Van Horn and Prama Mahendra Sings. Mary was born in Illinois and was of Irish and Dutch descent. Prama was born in Punjab, India, and then immigrated first into Canada and then into the United States, where he met his wife. At the time, many people, including Mary's family, were not thrilled about the idea of an interracial couple, which is really sad. People need to stop that. When Sante was just a toddler, the family moved to Southern California. Soon afterwards, in 1934, when Sante was only three, her father abandoned his family. Mary was left on her own to raise four small children. And this is where I'm going to add another disclaimer. There were differing accounts as to what happens next in Sante's childhood. I found interviews with Sante's sister, a university study, Sante herself, and accounts written by her firstborn son. They seem to differ slightly, so I did my best to piece it together. And I think that's common because you just have so many different people's perceptions of what they had heard or what they knew. Exactly, and what they're willing to even talk about. Right. Some accounts claim that Mary had turned to sex work to support her family. The interview with her sister, Retha, did not sound like this happened, but she is from the generation that typically did not openly talk about things like this, so I am unsure if it was just conveniently omitted from her account. The late 30s and early 40s might not have given Mary, an unwed mother of four, many options. One factor that makes me think that this could possibly be true is that Sante said she was molested by several adults starting in 1942 at the young age of eight. This molestation was not an isolated event and was committed by multiple men. If Mary had men coming and going from their home, this could explain the elevated risk that Sante was being subjected to. I can see how that would happen. Mm-hmm. Another factor that I think supports this idea is that eventually it is said that all four children were removed from the home. Some were placed in foster care and others were even adopted, including Sante. Again, though, I did not hear the sister Retha speak about her mother being in sex work. She made it sound more like Sante was just always a troublemaker, and this was not an untrue statement. She absolutely was a troublemaker. Retha recalled on an A&E documentary that Sante would say to her, quote, It's time for the fire, and then would hold a lit match underneath each one of her sister's fingers. If Sante felt like Retha did not endure this torture the right way, she would start the process of going from finger to finger all over again. 
What? Yeah. At what age? This is young. This is under 10. And she just liked to inflict pain? She does. Ooh, that's disturbing. And Retha said, yeah, if I did it wrong, she had to start over. What's the right way to endure pain like that? I don't know. Maybe if she flinched or pulled her hand away, she didn't elaborate. Wow. Retha also stated that Sante loved to torture the animals on the farm that they grew up on. While the goats were tied up, Sante would take hat pins and shove them into the hind quarters of the goats. Hat pins were commonly used during that time. They typically had a decorative head, and the pin part itself would average between 6 and 8 inches in length. So not a tiny little pin are we talking about. No, that would cause so much pain. And then even afterwards, how did they live through the infection part? I don't know. Sante would also target the farm dogs. She would catch one and then clip clothespins on their noses, ears, and genitals. Retha said, quote, My sister enjoyed hurting living things. And I'm sure many of you likely noticed, but these behaviors, fire and animal cruelty, give Sante two checks out of the three in the McDonald triad. I didn't read any reports of bedwetting being an issue. So I think it was just the two out of three. Two out of three ain't bad. Or in this case, is bad. It is bad. (laughs) This is when you don't want points. While at school, Sante was targeted for being part Indian. So sadly, she did not have any friends. School was rough, but home was even worse. Retha disclosed that Sante and their older brother seemed to be too close for comfort. Ooh. They openly caressed one another, and Sante would sit on his lap. It's so hard, though, when you have a child that's sexually molested at such a young age, that just becomes almost an acceptable behavior. Or how they seek attention. Right. It was said that they were uncomfortably physical with one another, and it is strongly suspected that they were having an incestuous relationship. Sante and Retha were removed from their mother's care due to neglect and were placed in a home for girls, which I think just means an orphanage. At this point, I believe her brother and other sibling were already gone from the home. I'm not sure if they were removed or moved out on their own by then. Mary eventually picked her girls up and took off to Los Angeles. They moved into a small place above a factory in a rough neighborhood. The owner felt sorry for them and let them live there rent-free. Oh, that was kind. It was. Retha stated that this new move did not help Sante's behavior. She said that Sante would explode into a fit of uncontrollable rage at least twice a day, and the reasons for these outbursts were commonly due to Sante not getting what she wanted. Because of this, Mary would often give in and just give Sante whatever she asked for. And we will see this pattern of behavior in her adult life as well. She would just pull temper tantrums? Yeah, do whatever she had to do to get what she wanted. Huh. And was there any reports of any developmental delays of why she couldn't process things in a more acceptable manner? No, I didn't read any of those types of reports for her. I don't think any were completed, and I don't think it was suspected. My guess is she was being raped from age eight and didn't know how to deal with those feelings. That would make sense. And they were taken away from neglect, so she was probably kind of off on her own. In 1947, Sante met a couple who felt sorry for her and wanted to give her a better home life. This couple was well off financially. They owned a successful movie theater and pop shop in Studio City, which I have to say are two of my favorite things. This couple were not able to care for Sante themselves, but they did introduce her to the woman's sister and brother-in-law, Mary and Ed Chambers. Mary and Ed lived in Carson City, Nevada. They wanted to adopt Sante, 
and Sante's birth mother, Mary, did not resist the idea at all. She was like, here, take her. Because she was such a problem child. Right. Retha said that the day the Chambers left with Sante, they danced in celebration. Oh, ouch. Right? But it does tell you a little bit about what kind of force she was in their home. Yeah, but you think as a mom, you'd at least shed a tear. I don't know (laughs) if you'd be dancing in celebration. I don't know. There are some days, Christy. (laughs) (laughs) We all have those days, but that was just surprising to me to learn that they actually danced as soon as she left. That is surprising. Yeah, it reminded me of The Wizard of Oz, the song about the witch being dead. (laughs) And they're all dancing and excited. (laughs) Well, it sounds like she was quite a handful. She was. But usually as a parent, you want to help your child, not just farm them off to somebody else. Not that we're mom shaming, but... Sometimes you just feel like you have to, like somebody else will just be better at this job. Right. But I would still feel sad if that was the case. I don't know that I'd be celebrating. Ed worked for the Nevada Army National Guard, and Mary was a bookkeeper. Sante was around 12 or 13 when they adopted her. Not only did she gain new parents, but she also gained a new brother, Howard. The Chambers had previously adopted him. He was seven years old when Sante joined their family. So she got a little brother. This new family of Sante's were considered socialites in their community. Despite Ed having a bit of a drinking problem, they had money and were always on the invite list. Sante was in her glory, and with this new status, she even changed her name for a time to Sandy Chambers. I will say that Sante was a beautiful girl in her youth and young adulthood. She was conventionally very attractive. However, possibly stemming from her being left out because of her olive skin tone at her previous school, Sante started to wear white powder on her face. She could also now wear expensive and trendy clothing to help her fit in. Did it work? It did. For Sante, she was living a true life rags to riches story. She went from being Orphan Annie to living with Daddy Warbucks. Her newfound confidence helped her make friends for the first time. So this all sounds pretty positive. It does, but it's not going to stay that way, obviously. (laughs) But where does it go wrong? It goes very wrong. The rags to riches story just ends when it's all good. But sometimes it's not always what it seems. Sante should have been in her glory, but instead she resorted back to her sadistic ways. Now with some type of popularity, she became the bully. One of her school victims recalled that she had people hold him down while she pulled off his shoe and sock and placed a match between his toes. She would then light the match so it would burn between his toes. He said he could tell she got enjoyment out of his pain. That's beyond being the mean girl. Oh, for sure it is. Sante became best friends with a girl named Ruth. Others stated that Sante used her because she could control her. Ruth would do and go along with anything Sante suggested. Sante enjoyed having a minion to control. Sante's shenanigans soon turned criminal when she was caught shoplifting at age 16 in 1950. Sante stole a lipstick despite having the money to pay for it. Sante didn't face any repercussions for her shoplifting, and my assumption is because of her family name. Do you think it would have made a difference had she faced repercussions for her actions or been held accountable? Or do you think she's just off the deep end and it doesn't matter what's going to happen, she's just going to do what she wants to do? I 100% believe it would not have made a difference. Because she does face some repercussions in her life, and it doesn't make a difference. Hmm. Although her new family life sounded like a dream for Sante and looked picture perfect on the outside, according to a couple of accounts that I found, 
Sante was being raped repeatedly by her adoptive father, Ed. Oh. This would have likely added more fuel to her already concerning behaviors. That's always frustrating when they have this rough life, they get this second chance, and the same thing happens. Is that why he wanted to adopt a daughter? Maybe. That's just so disturbing. And a just getting into her teens kind of daughter. The reports I read said it took place for a couple of years. In 1952, Sante graduated high school and moved back to California with her bestie, Ruth. The two took a secretarial course together in California. They moved around a bit, from Sacramento to San Francisco and then to Santa Barbara. In Santa Barbara, the two friends took a journalism class together at the University of California. In 1955, at the age of 21, Sante took out a credit card in Ruth's boyfriend's father's name. Oh, and racked up $400 worth of purchases. Today, that's over 4500 US and over 6000 Canadian. That's a good chunk of change. It is. Instead of facing the consequences, Sante decided to just take off, leaving her friends to deal with the mess. Oh, she just has no accountability whatsoever. No. And it just shows that although Ruth felt that Sante was her best friend, Sante really didn't care about Ruth. No. And with her upbringing, it's understandable that she just can't make those attachments. Right. While still in California, Sante met a man named Lee Powers, and the two quickly fell for one another. They dated for a year until Lee graduated college. At that time, he decided to join the army. Worried that she was going to lose him, Sante lied to him and said that she was pregnant. He did what he thought was the right thing and married Sante on May 9th, 1956. She trapped him? She totally trapped him. And it soon became obvious that his new bride was not pregnant. But Lee stayed with her despite her lie. It was said that he never even confronted her about it. What? Mm Mm-hmm. In 1957, Lee told his wife that he wanted to become a teacher. And this was not good enough for Sante. She did not want to be a struggling housewife of a teacher's wage, and so she divorced the man whom she had trapped only a year earlier. She basically chewed him up and spit him out. That is so harsh. Right? Why did she even get married to him in the first place? She was scared of losing him. But then she kicked him to the curb. Yeah, well, he was in college. She's probably like, yeah, he's going to make lots of money. And then when she realized, oh, you're going to be a teacher, never mind. See ya. So again, she wasn't really attached to him, just the idea of what he could provide for her. Right. And this will be a repeating occurrence throughout this whole case. I'm not surprised. Yeah. Because she was neglected as a child, she would just be missing those synapses to create bonds. And she would feel like she had to fight for everything that she wanted. And for her, it's more what she feels she deserves. I'm not sure how heartbroken Lee was. But Sante would pretty much immediately dry her tears on her second husband's shoulder. She would be married before the year was up on November 9th, 1957. That is quick. Really quick. This time, she married a man named Edward Walker. She had known Edward from high school. They had dated sporadically throughout the years. This marriage would not last, but did last longer than her first. Husband number two was a general contractor and built homes in Sacramento. That's better than a teacher? He was able to provide a well-off lifestyle for his new wife. He owned the company. Okay. Unsurprisingly, though, it wasn't enough to satiate Sante's greed. On Christmas Day 1960, Sante decided to give herself a little gift. A little something-something extra. Is it a man on the side? Nope. Not yet. 
On this day, she set fire to one of the homes that her husband built. I'm not sure if this was their home or one under construction. Either way, she was just wanting an insurance payout. Edward had no idea that his wife had set the fire. He assumed it was due to faulty electrical wiring. Wouldn't it be his own insurance that would have to pay out? It would have been, but she was the first one to collect it. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And then his business premiums would have went up. Totally. But this is just the beginning. Even though the entire house didn't burn down, Sante's scheme worked, and they collected an insurance payout of $10,000. Today, this is over 100000 U.S. and over 136000 Canadian. Also in 1960, Sante was arrested when she was caught stealing a hairdryer. Something that she could totally afford. Yep, again, she did have the money to pay for it. Stealing the hairdryer was not an isolated incident. She continued to have sticky fingers and would lift meaningless items that she didn't even really need. And I questioned, was she bored? Did she feel entitled? Or did she just crave the thrill? There's probably a little bit of each of those. Probably. You were going to say it's probably both, Yeah, but there was more than two options, though. (laughs) It was all of them. (laughs) Around this time, she also changed her name from Sandy back to Sante. Edward was starting to notice a change in her. She was showing her true colors, maybe. You can only uphold the mask for so long. Exactly. Mysterious fires continued to be set on different job sites of Edward's, causing damage to many of the houses he was building. And guess who was first in line to collect the insurance payouts? I don't understand why it's her. It was Sante. Was she pulling out the insurance on them? I'm not sure how it worked. Or maybe as his wife, she was able to collect them. I don't understand why the business wouldn't be collecting them. I know. But it was reported in every account that she was the one collecting those. That is so interesting. If this wasn't bad enough, Sante decided that not only did she need more money and items, but she also needed more men. It was only a matter of time, really. (laughs) Yep. She started stepping out on Edward, even with his wealthy business partners. Like I mentioned earlier, she was a bit of a bombshell and had no problem attracting men. Amid all this chaos, at age 28, Sante fell pregnant for realsies this time and gave birth to a son, Kent Walker, on September 27, 1962. And this is the son who would grow up and write a book about his mother. Kent would later say that he had a good childhood, that Sante was a good mother to him, but he was not surprised by her actions. Okay. So she was able to separate those things. She actually took really good care of him. He said, I was always well taken care for. I had birthday parties and and no abuse going on with him. So she's got like this dual personality going on? I guess. Or he fit her need. One of her little possessions Mm. is probably more what I think it was. Right. She could dress him up, tell him what to do. She got the attention. Yeah. In 1967, Sante decided that husband number two could no longer give her everything she wanted, so she left him and filed for divorce, which was finalized two years later in 1969. This has got to be really unusual for this time period of the woman leaving the man. Oh, yeah. And so many times. And just basically like a man eater, literally chewing them up and spitting them out. Just using them for what she wants them for. And then see ya. Yeah, as soon as she's done with him, okay, bye, I don't need you anymore. However, Sante seemed to have the attitude of, I don't want him, but I don't want anyone else to have him either. She's possessive. She's greedy. She's a greedy little dirtbag. 
This was proven when she smashed Edward's window one day in 1968 and attacked him while looking for his new girlfriend. And I can just picture it. She was probably like, where is she? Where is she? (laughs) Edward wasn't really her intended target. So a few weeks later, she finally tracked down Edward's girlfriend in a parking lot and let her have it, even dragging her on the ground by her hair. But she had already divorced the guy. Yeah, it was during the proceedings. She didn't want him, but she didn't want anyone else to have him either. Wow. I know that poor girlfriend. Could you imagine? I don't know if any new relationship would be worth that. (laughs) Well, at least wait till the guy is fully divorced. (laughs) That's true. Well, they had been separated for, it took two years. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's not like she's knocking right on the heels of Sante. I'm not sure, to be honest, when they got together, but she had moved on too. She had a boyfriend. Yeah, it's totally true. I can just envision the drama of that. Right? (laughs) I shouldn't laugh. But you know when people are like, oh, my ex is crazy? Edward's ex really was crazy. (laughs) (laughs) On Christmas Eve of the following year, Sante got her then-boyfriend to shoot blanks with her at Edward on a mountain road. What? To justify this, she said he had turned on her. There is a lot of chaotic things that took place over the next few years, but we do not have the time to go over them all. Just know it was more of the same. Theft, fires, and mayhem. She was wild and brutal about it. How did she convince her boyfriend to go shoot at somebody else? She must have had some kind of charm about her. Hmm. It was said that she could use what the good Lord gave her to get what she wanted for men. She had that power over them. Mm -hmm. The feminine wiles. Right? And if her mom was in sex work, she may have seen her mom using some of those same techniques with the men that she was bringing home. Oh, I never thought about that. I didn't till just now either. Sante and her son Kent moved around a bit, and when he reached the age of 10 in 1972, she started to get her son to sneak into houses and steal stuff for her. Part of a mother's role is to instill values and give advice to our children in hopes of them becoming good people. Kent recalls his mother telling him to marry for money. Love and looks didn't matter. That seems like it would be her advice, because that's the advice she was following herself. Exactly. Sante proved to her son that she believed this when she made the plan to find a millionaire and marry him. So now she's out on the hunt. Yes, she's definitely on the hunt. And her son knows about it. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And he's like 10. It's just wild, this whole story. (laughs) That's too much information. I know. But she's like, yeah, you got to marry for money and I'm going to show you how to do it. She moved them to Palm Springs got a little boost in the bust area, and started to wear big black wigs. Many people told her that she looked like Elizabeth Taylor, and so she decided to play this up and used it to her advantage. Allegedly, she would even pretend to be Elizabeth Taylor to get free stuff, and it would work. She even sold autographs to unsuspecting fans for $100 a pop. She looked that much like her? She really did. She had this all-eyes-on-me bigger-than-life personality, and easily passed as a celebrity. That is wild. Mm-hmm. And why black wig? Did she set out originally to impersonate Elizabeth Taylor? I think she did. Okay. And probably at the time, with Elizabeth Taylor being so popular, a lot of women were probably going for that look. Mm. It was probably what was considered attractive. Right. Like when everybody got the Rachel haircut. I had that. I did too. <laughs> Lucky for Sante... And unlucky for her next target, 
Sante read in Million Magazine that a wealthy real estate developer named Kenneth Keith Kimes had recently divorced. She's actually doing research for this. She was looking in a magazine called Million Magazine, all about millionaires. He was worth approximately $20 million. Today, over $123 million U.S. and almost $164 million Canadian. She wasn't messing around. Sante saw dollar signs. She wholeheartedly believed that she deserved to be a millionaire's wife. My guess is she was thumbing through the magazine shopping for a man she could win. And he's just been divorced, so maybe he's feeling a little bit vulnerable? Yeah, like, oh, don't worry, baby. I'll make you feel better. (laughs) Now pass me that Amex card. (laughs) I'll go buy something nice to put on. Right. But she actually did have her work set out for her. Kenneth was 17 years older than Sante and had two children, I believe both sons, from his previous marriage. He was adamant that he did not want to get married again, and his fortune was to be willed to his kids. Sante had to chase after Kenneth for an entire year. He was said to be an alcoholic, and so she used this to her manipulative advantage. She would aggressively flirt with him. She even went as far to mostly wear white when she found out that that was his favorite color. Her persistence paid off, and in 1971, Sante and her son Kent moved in with her target. Moving in is different than getting married. It's true. Sante was in her glory, living the life of luxury with her new beau. They were rubbing elbows with the elite, and she was lavishing in it. She had even swindled her way into meeting political figures and being photographed with them. She would, like, crash parties and stuff. After four years of trying to convince Kenneth to marry her, she decided to do the same thing she had done to trap her first husband, only this time she did get pregnant. Apparently, Kenneth had told friends prior to this that Sante was so beautiful, but he knew she wanted his fortune, so he would not marry her. He wanted his estate to go to his children. He wanted his fortune left to his children, but now Sante is about to have one of his children. That was totally her thinking behind it. On March 24th, 1975, at the age of 40, Sante gave birth to her second son and future partner in crime, Kenneth Kimes Jr. And I think even giving him his father's name was strategic. It would be. Totally. He was named after his father, but was always called Kenny. At this point in the relationship, everyone just treated Sante as Kenneth's wife. If you are wondering how her first son fit into this equation, he eventually didn't. In 1975, Kent was caught stealing surfboards. Sante was mad at him for getting caught, not for stealing the boards. She taught him better than that, Christy. She taught him how to steal and how not to get caught. Yep. She's like, if you're going to steal, you better not get caught. So that's what she was mad about. Well, and probably, too, that it would wreck this new reputation that she's got going on. Right. In June of that same year, she dropped off Kent with one of Kenneth's nephews. She was only supposed to be gone for a few hours, but left him there for an entire month. He would have been only around 13 years old. And he still says he had a good childhood? He did. The family moved to Honolulu that same year, but by then Kent had had his fill of his mother and wanted to live with his father. Kent ran away a few times to be with his dad, until finally Sante gave Edward custody of their son. One report said that he stayed in Hawaii, but I think him going to live with his dad is the correct report. 
Living in paradise with a multimillionaire was not enough for Sante. What? I'm like, that would be enough for me. I think so. Right? Uh, Sign me up. Yeah. Where can we get one of those? (laughs) I could do that life. (laughs) Yeah. She decided on April 17th, 1978 to burn down the house in Honolulu to collect the insurance money. Firefighters knew the fire was caused by arson, but the insurance company still paid the claim. At this point, Kenneth left for a while. He was upset, but he did return to Sante and his son. That sounds crazy. It is. Wanting a fresh start, the little family moved to Las Vegas in April of 1979. And it sounded like when they moved, they kept the house they were moving from and just bought additional ones. So then they could go back and forth to all these homes. They have all these vacation homes. Mm-hmm. And this isn't enough for her. No. Oh, man. I'm like fangirling over Sante. I know. Like, Sante, we would be happy with half of your life. <laughs> yeah, she didn't know how good she had it. While in Las Vegas, Sante decided that she needed some slaves. What? She called them her maids, but by definition, they were absolutely her slaves. And if you don't have a good idea of Sante's character yet, this next part will seal it in for you. Because she was greedy, and because she was a dirtbag, Sante went on the hunt for homeless, illegal immigrants, or would even more commonly go directly to Mexico and promise them a lavish lifestyle if they came to work for her as her maids. Once she got them into her home, it was a different story. Sante would basically enslave the unsuspecting people that she convinced to come work for her. She made them do everything for her without any pay. She would make them repeat chores when they didn't even need doing. She didn't even pay them? No. She would also physically abuse her quote-unquote staff. One report said she burned one of her workers with a hot iron and would strike another with hangers. Ooh, that's vicious. To keep them under her thumb and enduring her abuse, Sante threatened to report them to immigration if they fled or told anyone. They probably would have been better off. That's what I thought too. Kenneth was aware of what was happening, but turned a blind eye. No. He did. She was essentially keeping them imprisoned in their home, and he just continued business like usual. He was probably happy that it was keeping her from shoplifting and causing a scene for him. Yeah, or causing fires. True. Sante liked to show off how many maids she had. She told a friend, quote, They are my slaves and I love them. The maids called her the dragon lady. (laughs) Surprised it was only that. It was not a two-way love. Sante believed they deserved to be slaves and that she deserved to be waited on hand and foot. She believed people were born with these types of destinies, so she didn't feel bad about it. And this is what she's raising Kenny to believe as well. Absolutely she is. In the summer of 1979, Sante was reported by her firstborn son, Kent, about the slaves she was holding hostage in her home, but nothing was done about it until six years later in 1985. During that summer, a maid that Sante had smuggled in from Mexico managed to escape and blew the whistle regardless of the threats against her. Sante and Kenneth were both charged with federal slavery, 17 counts of involuntary servitude, and transporting illegal aliens. How brave of that one person. Right? Yeah, I can't imagine how scary that would have been for that maid. Seven maids testified at the trial saying they were not allowed to leave the premises from their multiple different homes. They had to work 24-7, between 19 and 20 hours, typically a day, without time off. They did not get paid for their work, 
and were beaten and abused by Sante. Kenneth pled guilty to get a reduced charge. He was given equivalent to three years probation and had to pay a hefty fine of $70,000. Sante, on the other hand, was sentenced to serve five years in prison. There are a few other things, though, to note prior to and during Sante going to prison. By this time, Sante and Kenneth had had a ceremony of sorts in Vegas. Some say it wasn't a legal marriage, and more just for show, agreed upon by Kenneth to keep Sante happy. So there's a debate to if they were actually married or not, but it didn't seem like it was official. It wasn't legal. Mm-hmm. Sante's first grandchild had already been born, fathered by her first son. Leading up to the trial, Sante had escaped from jail and had to be recaptured. How did she escape? I do not know. She charmed the guards? I don't know what she did. But I was not surprised, actually, when I heard that she had escaped from jail. That is crazy. Right? She's feral. Like Nothing can hold this girl back. Also leading up to this, Sante was stealing items whenever she could. Some of these items were now highly priced like a mink coat and expensive watches. She did face charges of grand larceny for the mink coat. She had been sentenced to jail time when that happened, but was able to get that conviction overturned on an appeal. And how this happened is nothing but fascinating. You're not even going to believe this either. (laughs) You honestly won't. The whole time I researched, I was like, what? (laughs) I'm sitting on the edge of my seat. Yeah, and this I hadn't heard in any documentary, but I found it in the appeal document. Sante failed to show up for court proceedings on July 18, 1985, after the lunch recess. And so the judge went forward with the hearing without her being present. Sante claimed that her reason for missing court was because she was struck by a car. What? (laughs) Seriously. Was she struck by a car? She was. Oh, (laughs) She was able to provide, we shouldn't be laughing, but it's so unbelievable. She was able to provide hospital records stating that she had been treated for injuries caused by being hit by a car and had later signed herself out of the hospital against medical advice. Her defense argued that she hadn't voluntarily waived her right to be present at her own trial and therefore it shouldn't have gone forward without her. Her constitutional right to face her jury was taken away And the jury, thinking she didn't care enough to even show back up, likely swayed their decision in finding her guilty that same day. And I just thought, isn't that the most wildest thing ever? I can totally see how it happened, though, now. Yeah. So the judge agreed, and they didn't even retry her. It was just thrown out. That's what I'm a little confused about. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the appeal gets granted. You retry. They did not. She was originally sentenced at the time and didn't have to serve it. I guess the mink coat wasn't worth enough money to do a whole new trial over. It would probably cost more than the mink coat to do a second trial. Well, probably even to do the first. True. Concerning her second-born son, Kenny had immediately become the apple of Sante's eye. He was referred to as her little prince. Well, he was her meal ticket, really. Oh, it's true. He was an expensive little investment. She showered him with gifts and affection and believed he could do no wrong. She felt he was too good for regular school and had him taught privately. One of the tutors later stated that Sante had become violent with her when she taught Kenny the story about the little boy who cried wolf. She threatened the tutor to never talk about morals with her son. She said that there was a time to lie and a time not to lie and that she as his mother would be the one to teach him that. That's quite the stance to take on parenting. 
Right. But she literally grabbed this tutor by the arm and chucked her on the bed and scolded her. Was this one of her slaves? No, this was the tutor that they had hired for Kenny. And Kenny was just excited to share with his mom and dad about this new story that the tutor had taught him. They had been reading it that day. And she was just so against any exposure to morals that she flipped out. Yeah, because she's like, this is not a true book. There is a right time to lie. And that's my job as his mom to let him know when. Wow. Yeah. I can see how you were saying that he was kind of groomed for this. Totally. A neighbor said that her child would sometimes play with Kenny. She said about Sante, quote, you just knew she was strange. The moment you spoke with her, you just didn't want your child to be in her company. She had a condescending attitude. When Kenny was little, she didn't want neighborhood kids to play with him because he was a quote unquote genius. Okay. So very much this holier than thou kind of attitude. Right. Goes along with the condescending nature. Mm -hmm. With Sante officially locked up, she was convicted of 14 counts of slaveholding, escaping from prison, and transporting illegal aliens. Kenneth was now able to finally bond with his son and give him some sort of normalcy. And how did that go over? Really well. Oh, really? This child isn't completely feral like his mom? (laughs) No, and this is where I feel like Kenny was molded into this. Because things go really well during this short period of time. Kenny was 11 when his mother went to a high-security California prison. His father immediately dropped the private tutors and enrolled him in St. Viator's Catholic Elementary School in Las Vegas to start grade 6. Because remember, they had Mm -hmm. different houses, so he took them to Vegas. And Sante was in California, so I think that was on purpose. He allowed Kenny to play freely with his friends. Kenneth even had a pool installed on the property for them all to play together. His house became the place to hang out. A friend of Kenny's later said that this period of time without his mother was, quote, Kenny's golden years. He said that Kenny's father was very kind and good and treated them all well. Reports indicated that Kenny enjoyed this time. He was happy being out from under his mother's domineering hand. Without his mother around, he was able to develop his own interests. He could play sports and talk to girls, and more importantly, he could finally develop a deeper relationship with his dad. It was said that they became very close during this time. She is not going to like any of this. Oh, she does not. Had Sante stayed in prison, Kenny's life would likely have turned out completely different. Sante was released early on December 11th, 1989, after only serving three years for her crimes. Oh, that sucks. And even that, even five years was too short of a sentence for enslaving people. As you could likely guess, Sante did not learn her lesson during her timeout and almost immediately was back to her thieving, fire-starting, dirtbaggery ways. She vowed to never go back to prison again. She broke the golden rule. She got caught. That's right. Sante being released was said to be hard on Kenny. His father stepped back and took a submissive role once again with his wife, and Kenny was again under her control. She put a stop to the things that were now taking place in Kenny's life that he enjoyed calling them bad influences on him. (laughs) That's the pot calling the kettle black. So ironic. She yanked him from his school and shut down his friendships. It's just so sad. It really is. Allegedly, it was during this time that Sante committed her first murder. However, this was never proven and she was never charged. She had hired someone to set their Honolulu house on fire as well as her lawyer's office on fire because he had papers that could further incriminate her. 
It is believed by some that she killed a man named Elmer Holmgren because he told a friend about helping to burn the lawyer's office. It is thought that Sante hit him on the back of his head with a hammer inside a car. He was in the front and she was sat behind him. His body was never found. And again, this is alleged, not proven. In July of 1992, Kenneth and Sante again take their shot at a fresh start and move to the Bahamas. Can you imagine getting to just move to a new exotic place every time you get bored or mess up and want a fresh start? That would be so lovely. Right? Like, hmm, where should we go? Just point on a map somewhere. Let's go there. Tahiti. Bora Bora. That would be nice. Sadly, though, this would not be a fresh start for Kenneth. He died just two years later on March 28, 1994, of an aneurysm at the age of 74. Was it an aneurysm? It was. I knew you were going to ask that. I almost wrote it in here, but I was like, no, she'll ask. (laughs) No foul play was suspected with his death. That's too bad that he was just creating a life with his son and now he was gone. It was probably the only person that could have intervened with Kenny. Yes. But when Sante was released, he just reverted into that submissive role. Kenny had graduated high school the year prior to his father's death and was attending college and living it up making up for lost time, so to speak. Sante allowed him to go away to college. She did. Wow. However, that didn't last long because Sante insisted that her son drop out of college and come back to live with her. Well, she needed a companion, you know. Yes. It's all about Sante. His father's death was hard on him, and friends later said that there was a shift in Kenny. He just kind of gave up and would give in to whatever his mother had wanted. Prior to this noticeable shift, there are reports of Kenny attempting to rebel. He had gotten violent towards his mother and others, including a girlfriend, but this was soon put to a stop by his ruling mother. But he does have some violent undertones then. Yes. The account with his mom was told like he was going to kill her. Like, I'm going to kill you. He was so angry. And then other things were, oh, he'd get into a fight over like 40 bucks and beat the crap out of somebody. Hmm. But once Sante put a stop to it, he was right again under her spell. Instead of finishing college, Sante and Kenny started selling Cuban cigars, a business venture that did not appear to be on the up and up. They also carried out a plethora of con jobs. They stole a car in Cedar City, Utah with a bad check and swindled money out of anyone they could, even going to the extent of filing lawsuits against as many people as they could, including a plastic surgeon. Why? Aren't they well set up after Kenneth died? They have all these houses. I'm sure there was some inheritance. Well, that's what you would think. After her partner's death, Sante was furious to learn that Kenneth had not changed his will. Oh, so everything went to his two sons. Yes. His entire fortune was left to his two kids from his first marriage. Not a dime was left for Sante or her precious Kenny. Well, he was true to his word. Yep. And I don't know if this was intentional or if he just never got around to it. I'm surprised she didn't somehow forge something. (laughs) Well, she doesn't just give up. Sante was not okay with this and would not take this punch laying down. As we know, she believes she deserved the lifestyle that she had become accustomed to. Sante slyly convinced Kenny to go with her to the Bahamas in 1996. She knew that Kenneth had an offshore bank account there and wanted to try and empty it. She thought she'd be sneaky. An officer of the First Cayman Bank, a 55-year-old man named Syed Bilal Ahmed, was on to them, causing Sante's scheme to go awry. 
Syed was from the Cayman Islands and traveled to begin looking into the discrepancies between the accounts. He was last seen on September 4, 1996, having dinner with Sante and Kenny to discuss Kenneth's bank accounts. He had told his family that he was meeting with the Kimes, and restaurant staff were able to confirm that the three of them dined together. That's quite the banker. Well, this is not a small account. It's not a small amount of money. Syed's luggage had been removed from his hotel room, but it was just like he vanished. Sante and Kenny were long gone when police started their investigation. Again, no proof was found, but Kenny would later admit that they murdered this man for figuring out their con. And we're going to go into a little bit more detail on this later on. Becoming desperate, Sante turned to her old tricks and burned down her Las Vegas house for insurance money on January 31st, 1998. However, Sante had pulled a con regarding the house just prior to burning it down. This weasel managed to put the deed of the home in their friend's name, a 65-year-old man named David Kasdan. She then took out a large loan for over $200,000 against the home, also in David's name. He had no idea until he got a bill in the mail for his first payment due on his massive loan. And I heard that it was like $280,000, which was a lot for that time. And can you imagine opening a letter for a loan payment on a house you did not know you owned? It's just so shocking to me that that could even happen. Yeah, she was able to do it. She was good at her craft. Rightfully, David confronted Sante and was like, what the actual heck is going on here? She had swindled him and he knew it. She tried to bully him into going along with her scheme and he refused. A short time later, on March 14th, David Kasdan's body was found by a homeless person inside a dumpster near the Los Angeles airport. He had known the Kimes for 20 years. He had started out as Kenneth's friend. David had been shot to death. Police suspected the Kimes, but had no evidence to prove it. When Sante burned this house down, she had already put the name of the title in a man she met at a homeless shelter, Robert McCarran, whom she forced to comply with her con. Wow. Three months later, Sante and Kenny set their sights on their next and final victim. Again in a magazine, Sante read about an 82-year-old rich socialite named Irene Silverman. The article said that she had recently become widowed. Irene was a retired ballerina, and her husband earned his wealth as a real estate mogul. So now she's going to send in Kenny. She does, but not in the way that you think. Okay. Irene owned a luxurious brownstone in New York valued at $8 million and was renting rooms like a hotel. And today that is almost $14 million U.S. million and almost $20 million Canadian. Chomping at the bit, any guesses where these two dirtbags headed next? To the brownstone? Yep, they headed to New York. Kenny, under the alias Manny Gurin, rented a room from Irene in June of 1998. The building was at 20 East 65th Street between Madison and 5th Avenues and cost a cool $6,000 a month to rent. That's a lot of money for back then. It is. That's a lot for now, let alone in 1998. But I guess if you were renting a place that is worth like 20 million Canadian, it would be a hefty price tag. To try and fool Irene, Sante posed as Kenny's work assistant. It was said that Irene was immediately suspicious of Kenny. She said he smelled like jail. Oh, that's quite the description. Yeah, I don't know if that was a common saying, but... He was sketchy. Yes. 
It only took weeks before Kenny and his sadistic mother put their plan into action. On July 2nd, Sante managed to use false documents and a disguise to pretend that she was Irene Silverman and was astonishingly able to get a deed transfer notarized for Irene's property. What? With the mansion now in her name, the only thing left to do was to get rid of Irene. She actually had to put on a disguise and did this in person. These are not little schemes. They're not. Irene told staff and people at a dinner party on July 4th that she was going to finally evict this Manny character on Monday. He kept promising to provide her with references, but failed to do so each day. She also had noticed that any time he passed a security camera, he shielded his face. She had already told him to leave and had turned off phone service to his room, but he hadn't left yet. She's pretty with it. She really is. And that's why police suspect foul play, because it wasn't like she was this elderly lady who didn't know what she was doing and could have wandered off somewhere. Irene must have been following her gut feelings about him, which makes this extra terrible. She knew something was off with this guy and wanted him out of her house. Sadly, the next day on July 5th, Irene went missing. Her staff thought she was napping when they didn't see her for a while, but by 442, a staff member went knocking on her door and discovered that she was not there. She was described as rarely leaving her home, and when she did, she was always accompanied by a member of her staff. This set off red flag alarms for all who knew her, and police were promptly called. Sadly, she would never be found. Irene's staff told police they were suspicious of a creepy guy who had just moved into apartment 1B. Unsurprisingly, this creepy guy, Manny Guerin, a.k.a. Kenny Kimes, was nowhere to be found and his apartment had been cleaned out. It was also noted that missing from the room that Kenny had rented was a large pillow, a comforter, and the shower curtain liner. (gasps) They wrapped her up in her own belongings? They did. Police also discovered a roll of duct tape left behind and a new box of garbage bags with only four taken from the box. Okay, I'm not understanding. They seem so smart to run all these cons, but yet they're going to leave that much evidence behind. Well, technically, they just left the bags and the duct tape and had taken the other things with them. But it screams foul play. It absolutely does. But it doesn't automatically connect them to Sante and Kenny. Right, because they're using aliases. Yes. How they got caught is right in line with this whole entire case. You know how sometimes in a murder case, the dirtbag is caught because of a totally unrelated charge, like a traffic violation? Well, the universe worked its magic in this case. Sante and Kenny Kimes were picked up by police the same day that Irene went missing outside the New York Hilton Hotel for a completely different charge. The bum check they wrote for the Lincoln Town car they stole came back to bite them in the butt. Oh, no. Had they just not stolen the car, they might have gotten away with it. Finding them at this hotel was not by accident. The FBI used an informant from their past to set up a meeting with the Kimes. When they showed up, authorities pounced. When the car was searched, police were able to find documents and papers linking them to various crimes including the death of Irene. Sante had even written out detailed plans in multiple notebooks about what they intended to do to Irene. She had also made notes about other crimes they committed. I don't know if this was out of blatant stupidity, or were they pulling so many con jobs that she had to write it all down so she wouldn't mix up details? Or did she just need an outlet to brag about them? Maybe. 
I think she was trying to keep it all straight. The pair were also found in possession of Irene's keys, cassettes of her tape-recorded calls, wigs, masks, plastic handcuffs, a loaded Glock 9mm handgun, 22 caliber bullets, $30,000 cash, date rape drugs, and an empty box for a stun gun. I just don't understand. They were so smart, but yet they're carrying around evidence with them. Get rid of the evidence. Right? I don't know about you, but these are not things I commonly keep with me in my stolen vehicle. Oh, right? Here, prosecution, lay it all out. (laughs) Well, it just shows how confident they were that they were not going to get caught. And when Sante had gotten caught in the past, she didn't really have to face any consequences. That's true. Kenny tried to say that he didn't know the woman they were looking for and suggested to the officers that perhaps she was just out walking her dog. Officer stated that Kenny was so frazzled when they caught him that he wet his pants. Oh, no. Yes. If he didn't know the woman, how did he know if he had a dog? Well, he's like, oh, she's probably just walking her dog. Uh. She did have a dog, though. They noted that him wetting his pants was highly unusual. Kenny's half-brother thinks that this was because it was the first time in his life that his mother wasn't in control of the situation. She was a professional criminal and had sucked him into her world. He never looked at himself apart from her. He was essentially her slave, her clone. Inside the room at the plaza, police discovered a black duffel bag that contained a loaded 22 caliber Beretta, along with multiple other pieces of incriminating evidence. Despite not having a body for that evidence, Sante and Kenny were arrested and tried for Irene's murder. The trial began on Valentine's Day 2000. It's hard to convict without a body. It really is. So that just tells you about the volumes of evidence they must have already had. And how sure they were that these were their dirtbags they were looking for. Mm -hmm. Prosecutors were able to argue that the Kimes had motive for murdering Irene. Her property had been transferred to their shell corporation. It was widely known that Irene had plans to donate her estate to a charity in honor of her late mother after she passed away. They also argued that Irene could have easily been overpowered. She was only 4 foot 8 inches tall and weighed a mere 115 pounds. Plus, she was 82 years old. Kenny was only 23. He was 6 feet tall and weighed 190 pounds. Sante was 64, 5'5", and weighed 200 pounds at the time. So they could totally outmuscle her. Yeah, there's no way Irene could have overpowered them. Among the documents found in the Kimes' possession was Irene's house keys her social security card, her passport, and various other documents in her name. Police were also able to collect damning evidence against Sante and Kenny, such as fingerprints. Tenants reported seeing Manny and Irene arguing earlier in the day she went missing, and blood was found outside the apartment that belonged to Irene later that night. The killer duo requested a Darden hearing, which would have kept their identities a secret, but that request was denied. The pair also requested being tried separately, but that too was denied. Kenny chose to have legal aid. Sante insisted on representing herself, but was also appointed attorneys. I'm not surprised by that. But I do find it kind of sad that Kenny didn't get his own trial. He's still being lumped in with his mom. Yeah, and it's going to have an effect on his sentencing. Well, because she doesn't seem to have any redeemable qualities about her. No. But I don't feel that that's the case with Kenny. Yeah, I'm interested to see what you're going to think. During proceedings, the judge had to reprimand Sante on more than one occasion. The judge basically told her to shut up at one point and forbade her from speaking to the press. (laughs) 
<laughs> the judge had had enough. Sante just couldn't stop herself from being in the limelight. She wanted all eyes on her. The public had eaten up this story. They were one of the most wanted criminals across the country for so many crimes. Sante claims that along with her gag order, she was also not allowed to testify on her own behalf in court. <laughs> She's trying to drum up sympathy. Mm -hmm. But the judge had to tell her a few times, like, you have to stop talking. <laughs> she wouldn't be quiet. She was monologuing. <laughs> I don't know. She's all about the drama. She's Elizabeth Taylor, you know. <laughs> Sante and Kenny's story was covered by Barbara Walters. They were interviewed on 60 Minutes. And they played it up for the cameras. Sante tried to claim she was a wealthy grandmother being framed by the FBI. They're wild to watch on these interviews. Did she ever have any contact with her grandchild? She did. Oh, she did? Okay. Yeah, yeah she was involved. She was actually a doting grandma. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And maybe that's too why Kent said yeah, she was a good mom. Like as far as she treated him, it was okay. The most disturbing of warnings given to Sante during the trial by the judge involved her son, Kenny. The judge had to tell them to stop holding hands. These sick dirtbags were all over one another physically, and the judge had had enough. <gasps> they were incestuous? Yeah. I did not see that coming. I know. It is highly suspected that Sante and her son were indeed having an incestuous relationship. But then it got me thinking... She had done this with her brother as a child, so it likely didn't seem that unusual for her. But all I have to say is yuck. Well, it does add a whole other aspect of how she could manipulate him. For sure. Ooh. Especially as a young man, only 23. Mm-hmm. And neither of them actually ever admit to being sexually involved with one another, but most people believe that, yeah, they had to have been. Yeah, that's gross. Despite her efforts in May of 2000, Sante and Kenny were found guilty on 118 charges brought against them. Whoa. These charges included second-degree murder of Irene Silverman, possession of weapons, forged documents, stolen property, burglary, robbery, attempted robbery, grand larceny, attempted grand larceny, and even eavesdropping. They really threw the book at them. Yeah, 118 times. <laughs> Anything so and everything in the book. Absolutely. And I feel like they deserved it. Sante was sentenced to 120 years in prison, and her son received 125. He received more? Yes, and you'll find out why in a minute. Am I going to change my opinion of him? I don't know. A lot of people agree with you. When the verdict was read, Sante slowly turned and death glared at the jury. Kenny, on the other hand, burst out into laughter and kept talking while the judge was speaking. He just couldn't control himself. Well, I guess he didn't wet his pants. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a step up, I guess. I'm sure he was just so overwhelmed that he didn't know what else to do. Yeah, you know how like you can laugh or cry? Yeah. He just burst out into laughter. But it sounded pretty eerie, the look that Sante gave the jury. She just glared. She's going for them next. That's how I would feel if I was them. After being found guilty, the killer duo again turned to the media to try and plead their case. They were interviewed by Larry King on July 19, 2000 from Rikers Island. They had to be interviewed one after the other because they were not allowed to be in the same room together. Sante was first. She stated that she knew the truth was coming and they would be cleared because they were innocent. She's delusional. She absolutely 100% is. 
She told Larry that her appeals were going to work. Spoiler alert, none of them do. She said she had to believe that they would work because otherwise, quote, there is not any justice left in the country, Larry. Sounds very memorable. (laughs) I'm going to have to go watch that one. (laughs) You have to. She's so theatrical. She also said, quote, they have made the worst mistake in U.S. justice history. I'm sure several other people would disagree. Yeah. The people that were wrongly convicted, like actually wrongly convicted. Right? The mother and son said that the police manufactured a crime. They didn't even know where the woman was. They said FBI planted evidence to convict them and that Kenny never even lived in Irene's apartment. They said they had met her, but they were only trying to help her. Oh, of course. Because she was a poor widow. Help her out of her millions. Yeah, exactly. Out of her life. Sante denied all her other crimes or blew them off as minor things. She said she didn't have slaves. She was helping immigrants, and they filed civil lawsuits against her to get her money, and she only confessed to it to make it less stressful for her ailing husband. What a saint. What a martyr. She totally plays the victim, and it's infuriating. She called the case a witch hunt against her. She never takes any responsibility. She had a quick response to everything he asked her about. It is clear she mastered the art of being a con artist. When Larry asked how Sante felt about her son, she said, quote, Let me tell you about Kenny. The only reason I think I'm alive is that I must prove his innocence. Being a parent is the most important thing in the world, and that boy is as innocent and wonderful a son as you could ever pray for. He is in hell. He has done nothing wrong, and I will, I will spend my last breath praying for the public to free my innocent son. He's done nothing. To fight this corrupt system and bring out the truth. She then begs Larry to read the court transcripts. She said when the American people read them, they will know they were framed. Well, Sante, honey, this Canadian girl read the ones I could get my hands on, and I still think you're guilty. (laughs) Sorry about that. Everybody's going to be jaded about the judge having to tell them to keep your hands off your son. Right? (laughs) When Kenny was interviewed, he started spewing all these alleged facts, as he called them, about how they were falsely accused and convicted. He said it was a publicity stint because it was election year. They needed someone to pin it on and didn't want to blame a local. Just like his mother, Kenny denied all claims against him and acted outraged at the injustices placed against them. He made it sound absurd that he would kill someone for a mansion. He was like, how do you even steal a mansion? Mocking the very idea of it. Except that's exactly what they did. They did, and they knew how to do it. When asked about his mother, he said, quote, Well, my mom is a wonderful, caring mother. And her world is me, and she is my world. Gross. After this conviction, and despite their public plea, the pair were set to still be sent to California to be tried for the death of David Kasdan. In one radical, last-ditch attempt to save his mother, Kenny let his true color show. He fell on the sword for her? No. What? Not yet. He does. But first, in October of 2000... Kenny grabbed a TV producer and held her hostage by pressing a pen to her neck for four hours. What? He did not want his mother to be sent to California because this time the court would be seeking the death penalty. The situation was eventually handled and Kenny was sent to solitary confinement. 
That is wild. But he was threatening to kill this young TV producer if they were going to send his mom to California. And she was on the next bus out of there to California, right? You're right. (laughs) They weren't playing these games. The next month, Kenny made a deal to plead guilty to both murders in exchange for the death penalty to be taken off the table for both of them. During this process, he also told police that they had committed a third murder together. I'll summarize very quickly what he admitted about each murder. The bank officer, Syed Bilal Ahmed, was murdered by the two of them drowning him in the bathtub. They then disposed of his body into the ocean. Again, his body was not recovered, and neither one of them were charged with his murder. Under Sante's orders, Kenny shot David Kasdan in the back of the head with a twenty-two caliber handgun and then threw his body into the dumpster. To subdue Irene, the couple tasered her in the head, and then Kenny strangled her to death. They first wrapped her in the shower curtain and then placed her body in the garbage bags and threw her away. Kenny dumped her remains in a ditch at a construction site in Hoboken, New Jersey, but claimed he could not remember the exact site. Kenny tried to insist that his mother had nothing to do with the murders, but it was clear that even if he was the brawn, his mother was most certainly the brains and mastermind behind all their crimes. This was made certain by her detailed notebooks. There were 17 books in total. And they got them all because she left them in the car. Yep. Both were given life sentences for David's murder. Sante was sent to the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women in New York. Her earliest release date would have been in 2119. Sante and Kenny are also suspected of murdering a woman named Mary Jacqueline Levitz. She was an heiress to a multi-million dollar estate and went missing from Mississippi in 1995. Her body was never found and no evidence linked her disappearance to the Kimes, but her case was eerily similar. But Kenny never admitted to that one. He didn't. But he admitted to all the other ones they did? Yes. And I'm not even 100% sure that Sante didn't have a physical involvement in these murders. I think Kenny was falling on the sword and Sante allowed him to. Hmm. Even if that is exactly how it happened. I just can't say that I'm confident she didn't. Sante Kimes died in prison on May 21st, 2014 at the age of 79. Kenny is still sat rotting away behind bars. The judge who sentenced Sante said, quote, Sante Kimes is surely the most degenerate defendant who has ever appeared in this courtroom. I will end with quotes from Howard Saffer, the New York police commissioner at the time. He said on Larry King Live about the Kimes, quote, They're the essence of evil. If you look at every negative that you could put together relative to human beings, people who don't care about others, people who engage in violence, people who steal others' people's life savings, you know, if I had to rate the Kimes, scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the worst and 1 being the best, they would be a 10. These are two of the most cunning and probably two of the most evil criminals that we've ever dealt with. And that is the story of a sick and twisted, thieving, lying, and murdering duo, the Dragon Lady and her son, Dirtbags, Sante and Kenny Kimes. They are just awful. They are. And if you are thinking this case could be a movie, well, you are right. Because it was made into one starring Mary Tyler Moore in 2001. (laughs) Among inspiring and being featured on a plethora of other TV shows. There's a lot made about this case. Was there a Law & Order episode about them? Uh, There was a Criminal Minds. I don't remember, to be honest, if there was a Law & Order. There might have been. 
That was a great case, Christy, and it kept me on the edge of my seat the whole time. There were lots of twists and turns in it. Yeah, there was not even a dull moment while I was researching this case. It's just hard to believe that this was someone's real life and that they actually pulled off all of these things. Sante was a dirtbag for decades. But she was a dramatic dirtbag. She was. And she turned ugly in the end. (laughs) (laughs) Is that like the best justice ever? Maybe, but she did not age well. Her later pictures absolutely did not even look like the same woman as her earlier ones. Well, Jill could do that to you. That's true. She didn't have her millions of dollars to put towards her looks, I guess. Well, she sued the plastic surgeon, so nobody else would work on her. (laughs) And that wasn't even for a botched job. I think she had gone in for a nose job. And then she claimed that she had fallen off the table or something and got a concussion. Her head had been hit, and that's why she was suing them. So random, right? Wow, what a crazy case. And we'll be back again next week when I bring you another one. But until then, see ya. Bye. town. Sante and her son Kent moved. Oh, yeah. Sante and her son. Sante is not a fun word to say. She wasn't even nice about it. She. (laughs) (laughs) I love that that's your. They weren't even nice when they treated me like a slave. (laughs) Well, she wasn't. You know, I would want to hit her on the head with my mop. Like, how dare her? She's such a dirtbag, but she just wasn't nice. If you're going to be a dirtbag, be a nice one at least. I hate this girl. I hate her. We need chocolate. Yeah, we do. Go to this door. Should I text him? Yeah, we need treats. It only took weeks. It only took weeks before Kenny and his sadistic mother. Talk, talk, talk. It only took weeks before Kenny and his sadistic mother put their action into plan. No, put their plan into plan. <laughs> it's getting late, people. It is getting late. We're recording at night. <laughs> but then I thought... <laughs> she screamed louder than I did. I did this time. And I even knew it was him. I don't know. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm dying here. Well, you look spooky when the lights are off. Thanks, I know. <laughs> Not even mad that he scared us. We got snacks. <laughs> and it kept me on my seat the whole time, Christy. On the edge of your seat. Yeah. He said it kept me on my seat. Because <laughs> she usually runs I around, fall- you guys. <laughs> I didn't fall off my seat. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye.
Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on blasttheradio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's blasttheradio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast. 